You're listening to The Climate Show with Zoe McLennan and Simon Vanderab. After speaking with Viktor Frankl last week, we got a sense of what's been happening in the world of climate justice. We thought we'd continue on this trend by speaking to Emily Carson Epstein. She has been an active member of Climate Justice Montreal for the past year as an activist and organizer. Climate Justice Montreal is a non-hierarchical organization, so Emily does not have a special title. Here's what she had to say. All right, so here we are with Emily Carson Epstein of Climate Justice Montreal. Uh, but before we crack on, we should probably ask, what exactly is climate justice as opposed to climate change? Climate justice is a branch of environmental activism focused on the fact that not everyone is equally impacted by the effects of climate change and other environmental disasters, and that the people who are benefiting most from resource extraction are going to be the people who are least affected when climate change becomes a massive issue, and of course with issues that are already existing in the local community due to resource extraction. So we really focus on an intersectional point of view, looking at which communities are directly affected, why they're affected, and how we can help them out. Explicitly, who are those, who are those groups that benefit disproportionately from resources extraction and won't actually be affected by, by climate change? And I guess on the flip side of it, who are those, who are those people who don't benefit from resource extraction, but who will suffer? Well, the current way the environment is being destroyed is really based in capitalism. We're not a huge fan of capitalism on the climate justice front. And so those who are benefiting from big economic systems, such as the oil industry, say the CEO of Enbridge, everyone involved in making money off of fracking and the tar sands um, and the the export and sale of oil, are not going to be impacted when water levels rise. They're not the ones living in polluted communities. They're not the ones having health issues because of polluted air and water. And them and their families will be able to leave and move to higher ground and move to cleaner air and safer land whenever and whenever they want to. Meanwhile, the people whose lives and communities are in danger, such as local First Nations communities, and also globally, people who live closer closer to the ocean or people who are who are going to have much harder time with environmental destruction in terms of raising rising water levels and typhoons and hurricanes and fires and famines are not the people who are rich. They're not the people who are benefiting from resource extraction, and they're not the people who are going to be able to leave when things get really bad. So an example is Sarnia in Ontario is also known as a neighborhood called the Chemical Valley. And in Sarnia is located 40% of Canada's chemical industry. And the Chemical Valley has the most polluted air in Canada and also happens to be a First Nations reserve. Mm. And so the Anjanong First Nation lives in the Chemical Valley in Sarnia and their community has disproportionate health problems. In 2005, a federal study found that 39% of women in Sarnia, in the Chemical Valley, had had either miscarriages or stillbirths, Mm. and no federal or local studies have been done since then on that issue, and any any concerns that are raised are being brushed off as unscientific or or incidental. There's some really horrible stories about leaks happening in facilities and not getting repaired, and children having to run to the bus stop plugging their noses so that that their parents can feel safe about them going to school, which is pretty horrifying that that's happening so close to home. So we, we try to work 
in solidarity with communities like that as much as we can. That's very interesting. So this is not just about the, the burning of fossil fuels and the release of carbon dioxide. It's about all of the, the industrial processes um, that go into, into processing petroleum and those, the impacts on those communities. Yes, absolutely. So the tar sands themselves are having a massive impact. Obviously, the tar sands are the number one um, single environmentally destructive thing in the world, the largest, the largest environmental problem we have right now, and that's in Canada. So the extraction of oil from the tar sands is impacting people. The transport of oil is impacting people. We fight a lot against pipelines here in Quebec and across, and across the country. Locally, again, pipelines are going to be run through routes, through communities that can't, can't handle that and who, who will be impacted in terms of leaks and spills, but who also won't be listened to in terms of their concerns and, and whose lives will be, will be put at risk and are being put at risk but who aren't being listened to. So transport of oil, extraction of oil, and then, and then of course, the concerns down the road after the oil is burned and who's being impacted by that. What would you say to people who, who say, if we weren't using pipelines to, to transport oil, you know, we would be transporting it uh, by rail instead? And we saw the disastrous results of that in uh, La Magnetique um, a few years ago or by, by, by transport truck. Aren't, aren't pipelines a comparably safe way to transport oil? One thing that's alarming about pipelines is the sheer volume of oil that can be transported. So the reason pipelines are being built is because it's a much more efficient way to transport oil. And so the more pipelines exist, the more oil can be pumped out of the tar sands, which means the tar sands will keep expanding. And like I said, the tar sands is already the the largest single producer of oil in the world. So anything that makes that larger is a problem. Also, we've seen already that the safety regulations regarding pipelines are not sufficient. The government is being pressed by oil industries to to give permission to projects that are not safe. The energy boards, the safety procedures that are being put in place are controlled and fueled by, by again, by the people who are going to be benefiting from this money. Yeah, So and so we, we know that there will be leaks. A lot of the infrastructure being used and turned into oil pipelines is being created out of existing natural gas pipelines, which were not created to carry the superheated bitumen oil that's full of sand from the tar sands. It's corrosive. It's not, it, it is going, we're, there's a 90% chance that we're going to have leaks and spills. And we've already shown that um, the companies are not good at responding to concerns. They're not, uh, in December, after the Line 9 pipeline was completed, several groups of activists in Quebec and Ontario went and shut off the valves several times and chained themselves um, in protest to the pipeline. And in a couple cases, it took uh, five, five or more hours for Enbridge to realize that the pipeline had stopped and go and start it again. Um, and that's really horrifying because a pipeline leaking for five hours is going to do a lot more environmental destruction than one truck that crashes. So obviously, no oil transport is better, but pipelines are definitely a step a step backwards at this point. Who or what is is Climate Justice uh, Montreal, and 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 what do you do? Climate Justice Montreal is a grassroots group um, that's been around for a few years. I joined about a year ago, and there's about about ten or so of us that that run it on a regular basis. We're a very non-hierarchical organization, so no one has any more power than anyone else. Uh, everyone is welcome. We're a very, very accessible group. Um, and we have regular meetings. We co collaborate a lot with other grassroots organizations in Quebec. I think 
one of the real strengths of the activist movement in Quebec is that we have so many small grassroots uh, organizations that when we get together, we're able to do some really amazing stuff. Um, so yeah, we're a small group of uh, students and, and other young adults in the community, and we get together to uh, plan events and do solidarity work and education and just sort of find some hope in the situation that's going on. Uh, could you talk more about uh, the kind of activism that, that CJM practices? Yeah, of course. So we have three main focuses in terms of the work we do. We have education, solidarity, and direct action. So on the education front, we do a lot of workshops. We produce a lot of resources in terms of pamphlets and, and stuff to hang out, ha- hand out, sorry, <laughs> at events. We, we also hang out. We do, we do a lot of workshops in schools and in the community. And then in terms of the solidarity front, like I said, we, we like to work with communities who are being directly impacted by resource extraction, but who aren't necessarily listened to. And because we have a lot of privilege as Canadians and as settlers and um, as, as university students in a lot of cases, we like to use the power and the, and the platform that we have to amplify the voices of people who are having real issues and not being listened to. And we like to listen to them as well. We, we try to listen and see what we can do that's actually helpful instead of trying to, to, to solve problems that we don't fully understand ourselves. And then on the direct action front, we do more, yeah, direct, <laughs> direct action. We, don't, we, we do things like sit-ins, different kinds of campaigns, protests, get involved in protests and organization, organizational stuff. We organize pipeline panels, bringing, bringing different community groups together uh, and different experts in different fields to... to to figure out exactly what we need to do and how we're going to do it together. When you uh, when you do something like like direct action or like a sit-in, what uh, like could you could you give an an example of uh, of that? Is TGM one of those groups that that would go out to to a pipeline and 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 change th- change themselves to that, or would they do direct action in another area? Because we are quite a small organization, we don't do a lot of events or projects just on our own we mostly collaborate with other groups or other groups will get in touch with us if they're doing something interesting and want support or mobilization uh, and then we all together we have these networks created so that we can get a lot of people in one place at one time if we need it the reason i joined cjm actually was was last july i did a sit-in as a part of 350.org they reached out to us because they were organizing sit-ins around the country in mp's offices in the lead up to uh, the election trying to raise awareness about about environmental issues. So I, I participated in a sit-in in Thomas Mulcair's office with other other members of groups around Montreal. It was not just CJM at all. From the sounds of it, a lot of the uh, the work that's, that CJM does is in um, is, 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 is focused towards uh, people who, who live and work in, in, in Montreal. Is that would that be accurate to say that, that your, your scope is, uh, is fairly local? Yeah, I think because we are a small organization and and all of us are either students or we work, we we don't really have time to go gallivanting around as much fun as that would be. So we do, yeah, we do focus, we do focus locally in Montreal and especially in the surrounding areas where there are local communities. We do a lot of, a lot of the solidarity work we do with local indigenous people is in Quebec and Ontario and the the local areas. Uh, We do partner with larger organizations like Mm 350.org and other divestment campaigns sometimes across the country but yeah that's about about the scope of our work okay so when you you've you've talked about uh you've talked about working with 
not not just different different communities in, in, in Montreal and also in indigenous communities, also forming coalitions with other organizations. I guess I'm just I'm curious if you could if you could talk talk about that because you've you've said that that CJM is a, is a relatively small organization. Like who are these uh, like who who are these other people that that you're working with? Are these other is it mostly other grassroots organizations that are interested in climate justice? Are we talking about NGOs? Uh, political parties, like who who else is in this game? Um, there's a lot of different types of activism happening on a lot of different levels. And CJM is unique in a, in a lot of ways because we do kind of try to create links that aren't necessarily happening otherwise. We do kind of bridge a gap between NGOs and uh, less organized uh, grassroots organizations. And sometimes that's, a, sometimes that's a, a subject of contention. I mean, you have to decide who to work with and what alliances to make, and that can be, that can be difficult. Uh, because not everyone has the same agenda or the same uh, sources of funding, should we say, or alliances, other alliances. Uh, we're pretty strict about not being related to any governmental groups. We don't. We're not supported or in favor of any particular political parties. And also, we're we're a more bilingual group than a lot of organizations. We're I mean, we're primarily anglophones, but we really make an effort to to have bilingual events and connect with francophone groups in the city. Uh, we've hosted events with uh, Grip Ucam. We've hosted events, or we're part of the Culpa Chez Nous, which is a French coalition of grassroots groups opposed to pipeline construction. So, so if 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 CJM and and uh, the constellation of other groups that you um, that you that you you work with are successful in Montreal, uh, in Canada, I'm just I'm curious, like what what is a what does a world look like? Where climate justice has 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 been achieved, how is that world different from this one? Climate justice, since it comes from a very intersectional place, a world with climate justice would be a world that also had gender equality and economic equality and much much improved human rights. So it's all it's all kind of tied together. We're we're looking at addressing inequalities in systems that we believe are inherently flawed like colonialism and capitalism so a, yeah a world a world with 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 climate justice would be a world where everyone got what they needed from the environment around them and no more and no one was benefiting from the environment any more than anyone else and that we would it would be yeah. I don't want to bring up the word sustainable too much because it's kind of a catch a, a catchphrase a catchphrase these days. But yeah, a world a world with climate justice would be sustainable, and no part of people or the environment would be being exploited. Well, to your credit, I think uh, that that was the the only mention of sustainability this whole conversation. So I think you're doing rather well. How does uh how how does climate justice relate to relate to say gender equality? Well, again, going back to who's going to be more impacted by uh, the effects of climate change and the effects of resource extraction, women are, are more likely to, to be staying at home with families. They're less, uh, the vast majority of the corporations and the CEOs um, who are benefiting from and being in charge of, of this environmental destruction are men. In, in these communities, in, in Amjanong and these other communities, it's the women who are taking care of the children who are sick. It's the women who are, who are dealing with the... Um, the impacts of 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 these chemicals on their health and their family's health most harshly, um, and then on a global on a more global scheme, obviously women 
ha- have have a hard time of it in terms of education and child childbirth and and lack of access to resources um and yeah it's all it's all connected on a on a big global global scale so as we're as as we're coming to the to the end of the interview i'm I hesitate to ask this this question because i don't I don't know if it's going to end optimistically or not um but i'm mean, honestly in in your opinion uh do you think we're going to achieve climate justice or any measure of climate justice I think if you set out into any kind of activist work with some kind of goal in mind, some kind of end game. I think you're going to get discouraged pretty quickly. I think I can't imagine a day where we all sit down and go, okay, guys, we done it. We done it. We're done. <laughs> um, but I think, I think there definitely is hope. I think there is a lot of positive change happening. I think what's going to be needed is a much larger overhaul of the systems that we currently have in place, most notably our economic systems and our energy systems and where we get our energy from. And then we're still seeing massively the impacts of colonialism, so, so there's a ton of work to be done on that front as well, in terms of, of, of racism and the after effects of genocide in Canada. I think every, every one of us has a lot of power, and I've, I've learned how much power I have uh, since I started doing this work. So I think, I think, yeah, I think there is hope. I think there's a lot, of, a lot of work to be done and a long way to go, but we're on the right track. One final question. You, you talk about... Uh, and 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 of, and of course that it, it, that perfectly makes makes sense that uh, that because because your goals are are, are are intersectional and there are so many things um, that 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 would have to be dealt with to deal with climate justice. But to bring it back to to the to the wider topic of climate change, where where we're looking at at a, at a situation where we are in in the very in in the very final decades, if not even if not simply the very final decade uh, in which meaningful change can actually be taken to, pre- to prevent utterly catastrophic uh, effects of climate change um, for the rest of this century and centuries beyond. And I'm, I'm curious about your opinion on this. Is it, is it feasible to, to, to pursue the change of these, of these huge systems if we need to act so quickly to change to change the climate or do we have to or or is it necessary to to try and dismantle capitalism and 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 colonialism and gender oppression within a very short amount of time to to mitigate climate change at all i think that the ideal world that we keep thinking of we keep talking about where climate justice is a reality and economic justice is a reality and gender equality is a reality and colonialism has been overturned. I think that is a world that in which a lot of the systems we have in pl- place currently have been overturned. Um, I think, so yeah, I don't think we can get there without massive revolutionary upheaval, but I don't think, I don't think it's an, a black and white situation. I don't think it's an either or type of thing. I think we have to start doing the work we can within the systems we already have. If we're going to see any kind of change, I think we already have, uh, we're already seeing the impacts of climate change. We're going to see more impacts. Um, it's too late to stop everything entirely, but especially since we're starting to see impacts, we need to talk about who's being affected and how they're being affected and how we can help them uh, and how we can help them within existing systems. I think I think it was Naomi Klein who was talking about how 
we can try to use the systems that we have now to our advantage while they're while they're in place um and i think i think it is in a way it is about choosing your battles but it's about it's about directing energy at this point i think So that's it for another episode of The Climate Show. The Climate Show airs 8.30 to 9 a.m. every Monday on the Monday morning after. It is in collaboration with Divest McGill and is a CKUT 90.3 FM co-presentation. Climate change isn't over, but our show is. See you next week.